Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome to another episode of Strange Planet. Looking forward to this conversation. We're going to uh, be madly off in all directions, uh, but primarily we're going to stay within the uh, the horror genre. Uh, but we'll also talk about <clears throat> something called the Montauk Project, and uh, it inspired a documentary or a docudrama uh, about this secretive and, and sinister project called Montauk Chronicles, which is the story of three men who claim that between 1971 and 1983, secret experiments were conducted deep beneath the surface of the Camp Hero Air Force Base in Montauk, Long Island. And as I say, we'll also uh, talk about some iconic horror films with Christopher Garitano, who was uh, born in New York. He's a graduate of the School of Visual Arts with a major in film. He is the creator and director of the award-winning docudrama, as I mentioned, Montauk Chronicles, which came out in 2015. Chris is also the co-creator, executive producer, and co-host of the History Channel's The Dark Files. In 2019, Chris created, directed, executive produced, and hosted his eight-episode investigative series, Strange World, for the Travel Discovery Channel Networks. He's currently shooting several new TV programs, his first horror film or first horror movie, uh, writing his fictional novel, Montauk Boys, and is the creator and host of the Off to the Witch podcast. And uh, a great pleasure to welcome Christopher Garitano to Strange Planet. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, man. And I should also mention that you join me every Friday on my uh, weekday afternoon drive show, The Richard Serrett Show. You are the sofa cinephile, and uh, we have a lot of fun and I learn a lot from you as we discuss <laughs> some of your favorite and some of our favorite movies. It's a challenge because you know we have we have ten minutes or less, right, to talk about these amazing movies. And I, you know, I'm getting used to it though, and I, I love it. I love talking about this stuff with you. Um, but I just saw like I could some of these subjects, some of these movies, I could talk for hours about hours. That's right. Well, um, you do it so well. Uh, let's begin with the Montauk Project for those not familiar with what this secretive sinister experiment project was uh, allegedly all about in uh, in Long Island back in the, I guess, the early 70s leading into the 80s. Sure. So I was first exposed to that concept and that idea. There was an independent book published by a man named Preston Nichols, and it was called The Montauk Project, Experiments and Time. And I, I was aware of it. I, I believe I was in high school when it came out. And then I went to film school and I didn't really think much of it because I visited Montauk when I was a child and that was a resort town. That's where you went for your summer vacations a week out of the year, maybe go, you know, bodyboarding, surfing. Um, there's some restaurants there. There was a movie house there. You go out on boats, go fishing. I mean, that's what the town is, but five miles from town uh, in many, many acres of woods, there is a semi-automatic ground environment radar tower peeking above the tree canopy, something I did not notice in the summertime because the foliage really kind of blocked it if you weren't looking in the right direction. Even when you went to a 
the very edge of the ocean, uh, Montauk Point, rocky beaches, you know, away from town, you still didn't notice it. And in the early 2000s, I was interested in making um, a documentary about some kind of arcane subject. And one of them was I wanted to do something about the North American Sasquatch, something unlike what they're making today, which is 25 seasons of finding absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, and I had, a, I still have this idea in mind and, and, and I'm going to do this and it's very unique, but it would have cost a lot at that time. And a friend of mine said, you know, listen, you live on Long Island and I did at the time. Why don't you make something about the Montauk project? And it's something I did dismiss years previous. And I, um, my idea, the reason why I went forward was because I, I loved stories told by these kind of isolated, reclusive old men who have a crazy story to tell. And that was the beginning of it. I wanted to go sit with Al Bielik, who was this elderly man in Fort Myers, Florida, or Preston Nichols, who wrote the book, up in his lab in upstate New York. And I just, the prospect of doing that and beginning there and getting something very authentic from from this conversation, from the conversation sitting with this old man in his backyard telling me this crazy tale was where I started with it. And that's that's how it began for me. And then it, you know, right. other things happened. And Al Bielak, I, I, I think I interviewed Al at least on one occasion, probably going back almost 20 years ago and Preston Nichols, same thing. Um, and, and Al Bielak claimed, uh, it's a totally fantastical story, that he was involved with the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, there's some time travel involved, not only with the Philadelphia experiment, then afterwards. And uh, there was reportedly uh, something called the Montauk Chair that was part of the uh, the Montauk Project, which allowed people to travel through time. And I think um, Stuart Swerdlow, um, you also interviewed Stuart in the, uh, in the, in the film as well. Um, and then there was an element of, um, well, there were children, uh, kind of the, the, um, abandoned or orphaned homeless children swept off the streets in and around the town of Montauk, supposedly who were, uh, utilized in these experiments, uh, at this, was it an abandoned air force base or was it still operational at that time? So during the time they claim it was operational there's some unique aspects to this too because if you look at the basic plan of the story it's cherry-picked from science fiction everything from forbidden planet to uh the outer limits to the twilight zone star trek i mean you know v you know the, the show v that came out in the 80s there's elements of all of those in there but the one element that juxtaposed with the rest of them to me doesn't make sense if you're selling the science fiction story <laughs> Uh, is the kids being kidnapped, brutalized, murdered in, in some respects, drugged. It's just so out of place. And that was another curious aspect of it. They said it happened between 1971 and 1983. The base was still in operation, but what was suggested was that this kind of lax operation, compartmentalized operation where these gentlemen may have been just hanging out, essentially, you know, uh, any military personnel just maintaining, caretaking, uh, it was beneath the ground, unbeknownst to them, in a facility unknown uh, to anybody that didn't have major clearance. 
uh, that's where all this other stuff was happening. And there's some contradictions too, because, you know, in one instance, you have Al Bielik and Preston Nichols claiming they, they took a, a train underneath the ground from Brookhaven Labs, which was much further west than Montauk, mid-island or a little further, uh, to Montauk under the ground. And then they would go home the same way. But there's a moment where when they meant to save the day, they had a meeting in a local motel, the Memory Motel, where the allegedly the Rolling Stones wrote the song about. Uh, they had this memory to take down the project by using abilities that um, Duncan Cameron had. This was another one of the gentlemen. And they would release through the usage of the Montauk chair. And this is reverse engineered alien technology. They would release the monster from the id from Forbidden Planet, which in the story, in the Montauk story is Junior, this kind of energy beast that takes the form of a giant Sasquatch or just this kind of invisible force. And that's what it was described as. Um, and it was a lot to take in. I mean, I loved hearing the stories from Al and Preston, and there's just so many unique qualities about them. It didn't strike me as uh, a beneficial for them to lie because neither of them were really making any money at all off of the situation. Um, it's an incredibly complicated story. And, and um, I, as I recall with, with Al Bielak, and I've also interviewed Duncan uh, Cameron, I mean, it's difficult to keep them on a, a single narrative. They are very difficult to follow at times. Um, I mean, you can get lost. It makes you wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of time to think about this. Um, is it possible that they were afraid to talk about certain information in the 90s? And I believe that's when you were, you were interviewing them, correct? Uh, or early 2000s. Right. Early 2000s is when they started to reveal a little bit more. In that book, it seemed more geared towards this kind of science fiction adventure tale, removing a lot of the brutality that came later in conversation. And they were like, well, let's shape it around this. And they loved science fiction. Were they afraid to reveal certain things? Because still, like, why on earth would you put that element in there? It just seems so strange and random to put in a science fiction adventure story and um, perverse and disgusting and you know all these elements that just don't go along with the other stuff it's it's just so strange no indeed it is um there's also the question of you know whether you know parts of i think they've alluded to this that parts of their their memories were altered and and so forth it's it's incredibly convoluted um, but you 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 tell the story so well in the montauk chronicles uh where can we still see that so now, you know, for years I was keeping it really close to the to the vest. Um, I uh, it was only available through ordering it on my website, uh, DVD or Blu-ray, or downloading it from my website. But now I, I signed something recently. I think that really worked well uh, in terms of distribution, and it is available on Tubi, Plex, um, Apple TV, uh, Amazon. Uh, it's not free on Prime, but you can watch it for free on on tubi and plex and and roku so it, it's and it's on my youtube channel as well with a with my introduction it's not included in some of these other streaming networks and what's the status of uh, i know you were working on on um the fictional novel uh, montauk boys which i guess you know, based on the, the the children of montauk that were swept off the streets disappeared 
Uh, what's happening with that? So that that's, that actually began as a, um, I wrote a, a, a pilot episode for a television series and I was speaking with an MTV, uh, the former president of the MTV was meeting with him and his company in New York and they loved it. They loved the pitch. Uh, you can actually see my original pitch video that I showed them is on my YouTube channel. I wanted to put it out there because I, there's a lot of thieves in this, in this industry and I the script was going around because it was optioned by that company for over a year and um, essentially it takes place after the alleged Montauk project being shut down in 83 this is around 86 and it's a gang of the worst kids you could observe in high school some of them have been expelled um, you know switchblades uh, motorcycles whoever can get their hands on it they're in tons of trouble um, but this government program sees them as assets. And the Jack Pruitt character, who I portrayed in, in Montauk Chronicles and who was talked about by Preston Nichols and, and Al Bielik, is carried over into this as, a, as the program director. So this Montauk project is now revived in 86 underneath the ground. And this kind of fictional configuration of Montauk and the town I grew up in, Northport, I call it Northcliffe in the novel, is now the targets of interest are these bad kids. Now, I got that from actually talking to some of the so-called former Montauk boys, which made more sense to me, um, like a gentleman named, and it's, his, it's a fake name, James Bruce. He claimed he was one of these bad kids. And he said they were specifically looking for kids like us who no one would believe if we got out of this situation somehow. And also they liked the idea that we would burglarize homes. They liked the idea that we had this idea for uh, crime, this propensity for crime. So these kids are being targeted for this program to be turned into government assassins and they're being Soldiers. picked off one by one. Yes. So that's, that's essentially the tale from their perspective. You know, some of them are a little older, some of them are in high school age and it would be like a, you know, as a shorthand, it would be, you know, more like the outsiders or a very uh, sharp and edgy version, you know, something, the antithesis of, no offense to Stranger Things, I think it's a good show, but it would be very, very different than that. You right. Know? It's funny you mentioned the outsiders. You and I talked about the outsiders, Francis Ford Coppola's underrated film recently on my afternoon program. And as you said that, I was thinking, yeah, it sounds like a combination of the outsiders and maybe, I don't know, the born identity. Sure. Yeah. Because that's what some of these kids are being turned into. And um, I just, you know, I love the characters. I love the ideas. And this is um, no offense to the the collaborators uh, that were really interested in my work. I just felt like at that time, at least, you know, in the boardroom talking about it, some of the characters and scenarios were already being um, diluted. And I didn't want that. So I figured, Okay, and here's another scenario in the business of, the, as, as you know, you can have a screenplay that means the world to you. By the end of the situation, it could be rewritten seven times over and, and a lot of other names are attached, so your vision is also removed. And I just felt writing this novel is something I needed to do, get that, get that story out there the way it was intended and the way I intended it to be. And so that's what I'm doing. And, and also one of the collaborators at that company even said, and that's a great idea. You should, because now you'll have more of a, a strength if you were to translate it with us or someone like us, you know? Right. The Montauk boys look yeah. for it uh, soon, hopefully at a, uh, at a bookstore near you. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out, Chris, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your youth growing up in a, uh, 
in a video store and, and uh, your love, your passion for, uh, for all film, but in particular horror films. And we'll talk about some of the iconic horror films, Them and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Chris Garitano uh, will also talk about his uh, fabulous podcast, Off to the Witch. Back with more. Stay with us. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're back with Christopher Garitano. The podcast is off to the witch. We'll come back around to that, but how do we listen? So I, I, I suppose wherever you find your podcast, I mean, I know it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and a few others. And, um, for me, it started off as an experiment. I, I, I loved obviously listening to everybody from Art Bell to yourself. And um, I wanted to try something unique. Uh, so what is unique in the world of the podcast? I suppose staying in character, uh, keeping it audible, and a variety of arcane subjects that I think of, if I have a connection to them, then I can encourage the audience to be connected to that as well. So I'm really just choosing things that I'm severely interested in <laughs> after the uh, witch and that's as we'll as we'll discuss later that's going to hopefully branch off uh, that brand into several other projects uh, so we'll we'll get back to that but let's talk about your childhood uh growing up in in new york your parents owned a video store they did yeah and and looking back in hindsight i wasn't restricted from seeing uh much so i was allowed to see i i think i saw the texas chainsaw massacre when i was six Oh my, was yeah. that dramatic for you? I was so immersed in, okay, so it, it during those formative years, I was w watching everything from Universal Monsters to Abbott and Costello, Little Rascals, everything my parents grew up on, everything my grandparents were watching, all of that stuff at once, Wizard of Oz, which is an, just as amazing as uh, Citizen Kane, in my opinion. Um, but you know, all of that's hitting me at once. And then you have this dosage of slasher films because I had, I was obsessed with uh, this magazine. <laughs> oh yes. Fangoria. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was on newsstands at that time and it was quite taboo and the covers were just, you know, explosively violent. And, um, but I was allowed to read all that stuff within the magazine. I was introduced to special effects makeup. And so I was a kid that was making masks and wounds and, you know, five years old, I ran around with a makeup kit. So I was just obsessed with movie making in general. And I don't think I was, to answer your question, was super disturbed by Texas Chainsaw because part of me was exhilarated and scared, definitely. But the other part of me knew it was fake because I was reading about the actors in that magazine. And, um, you know, I have a, to the, to this day, I'm about to go shoot a film in uh, Texas. Um, 
And the person, Edwin Neal, who played the hitchhiker in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is an actor in the film. Uh, so I get to finally work with him, which is, you know, I've spent some time with him in the past, but it's it's surreal, you know, to, to sit in front of that character. Because in my opinion, he was the most terrifying character in the movie. Hmm. Um, you, uh, you, it seems like you have a soft spot for sort of the, the, um, the horror films that came out in the 1950s that were shot in kind of a film noir kind of uh, way, like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Them. Oh, uh, yes. Let's talk about Them. I mean, anytime you can have, you know, gigantic irradiated ants attacking a, a city, that's a great premise for a film. It's been, uh, it's been um, you know, attacking ants. That's been a, a theme in a number of uh, films. It was one in, with Charlton Heston when he was in the... Uh, in the Amazon, and and uh, there was another one with William Shatner, as I recall, kind of a sci-fi thriller with William Shatner. Uh, let's talk about them, though. Tell us about it. I mean, that's a seminal, uh, you know, giant insect movie, but it's done right. You can watch it to this day. And um, I guess it was based on fears of radiation, nuclear holocaust, what what those results would manifest. Uh, because there was all this speculation at the time, and I and and atomic age science fiction horror films were born. Uh, I did not live through that. What I ended up seeing those movies on were a program called the 430 movie. At the very tail end of that, it would play on channel 11 in the afternoon, and they would play monster movies, Godzilla films, horror films, some slasher films of the time. I remember a movie called Just Before Dawn playing in the early 80s on that program but i loved it you know it was late afternoon especially in october and you're watching this block of of horror films you know every day uh just blown away and i think that's where i saw them for the very first time and um you know you're watching these movies from different eras too you know how they're approached them inspired gentlemen like the master john carpenter on his best films and another 50s horror film of the like is is the thing which carpenter didn't make at a time he didn't remake at a time where it was fashionable or it was the industry standard to go hire someone with a bit of talent to go remake an older movie that was done out of pure passion and it was a box office failure he literally lost his contract with universal and the movie is a masterpiece and it does fall in line with with these pictures because how do you take it further than those influential films like them uh and the thing and carpenter did that and and innovative special effects and everything in there and it ter that terrified me as a kid the thing i knew it was fake too but there was something about that that stayed with me and i had nightmares over that film i mean i think you could have nightmares now over it it's so grotesque but uh the carpenter version or the the original I argue with my uh, my parents on this one. They love the original more so. I, I, the Carpenter version came out in 82, and it was the summer that E.T. came out. Okay, so everybody is now there for E.T. They want this friendly alien. I loved E.T. I saw it at the drive-in with my family, but then I saw The Thing, and it just grossed people out, but it was so intense. It was Carpenter's masterpiece. Imagine making your masterpiece and having the head of a studio look at you and say, you just failed. Wow. You're finished. You're never going to make another movie again. <laughs>
Holy smokes. All right, another time out, uh, Chris. We'll come back. We'll talk yeah. about uh, the invasion of the body snatchers and much more. Christopher Garitano, host of Off to the Witch. Stay with us. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as self-evident. Self-evident. You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Christopher Garitano is uh, with us. And uh, you may be familiar with him through uh, the Montauk Chronicles, the Dark Files, uh, Strange World, which was the Travel Discovery uh, Channel series. Uh, right now we're talking about some of his favorite horror movies. And uh, we mentioned um, Them and uh, The Thing. I guess the, the common one of the common denominators there would be James Arness, who played uh, in Them with the giant irradiated ants. I think he played an FBI agent. And then, of course, he plays The, uh, the Thing in, um, in The Thing. Um, let me ask you, uh, let's get into the invasion of the, uh, the body snatchers. Again, another um, movie that was remade in the late 70s. Uh, but the original, again, came out, uh, what, about 1956. So height of the Cold War, height of the whole McCarthyism uh, scare. Um, what, to me, what, or, uh, what do you think the film is really about? I mean, ostensibly, we've got, you know, these alien spores coming down to Earth and uh, taking over people and creating these replicas of humans and so forth uh, who become part of the pod. But, but what is the, the subtext with this movie? I, well, I think the subtext at the time, and, it's, and it was argued, you know, because it was a book first, uh, could have been referring to things of World War II, um, you know, things that were happening with the Nazis, but it's applicable to human nature, in my opinion, because however you feel about it, we've witnessed a lot of that. And I felt <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 70s version, was just re-released on, <laughs> oddly enough, around the time of the pandemic and where people were calling each other out and canceling each other. All of a sudden, it gets re-released in 4K Blu-ray and is being really pushed uh, and I'm watching this and I remember even saying it to friends, like, I feel like at any point in time, one of the pod people are going to point at me and start screaming. <laughs> I think that's the subtext. It's through science fiction and horror. Some of the greatest, they, they embedded in the subtext far enough for you to enjoy the picture and not feel like you're watching the news. However, I certainly do believe that that's a comment on human nature and that we lose a part of ourselves with that mentality, whereas you're just doing what you're told, whereas you're calling out your neighbors because you were told to. Um, and science fiction warns us of things. And I think writers of science fiction are prophets. Creators of science fiction are literal prophets. Just about anything that was written seems to come to fruition, good and bad. Um, I'm really interested in, in in creating a series on on this subject. Really talking about, for instance, you know, we we reviewed it on your show, uh, Maximum Overdrive, you know, and we we even talked about it. It's like it's a silly drive-in movie, 
but now it's possible. And if we we transfer all of our vehicles over to these internet communicative uh, communicative vehicles or internet controlled vehicle electric vehicles that could be operated remotely guess what i mean someone can tap into those vehicles and use them as weapons of mass destruction or turn them against you or drive them into homes or whatever um and then maximum overdrive is real whether it be an alien force doing it or some terrorist group out here so it just seems like every bit of technology everything that's been described could could come to fruition even something like Crichton's Jurassic Park i mean they're talking about bringing the mammoth back that's a very real thing and if they can do that then you know, we can bring dinosaurs back uh is that what you mean by when you talk about how current events and whether it's the pandemic or artificial intelligence robotics how these events uh might positively impact the work of cinema and music Okay, so yeah, the, so the so if you look throughout history, times of restriction uh, have caused rebellion, and it, especially in artists and creators, you know, the more they tell us we can't, we can't, the more the desire to do so and defy that is it grows, and um, I think incredible pictures have come out of times like that, you know, because it, it it takes a while to gestate, but then the artist wants to comment on that, wants to say something about that. This is the weirdest time where I've never seen the youth just bow down and say, I'll do whatever the government tells me to do. That's a very odd thing. There's going to be some reaction to that. I pro perhaps certainly from us, you know, the older folks and, and the very young kids are going to remember where they were so restricted. And I think their artwork's going to flourish. I think there might be a, a bracket of age group where they're going to be a little confused as to what exactly happened to them. And I don't know how they're going to react. This is all prediction, but um, I think some of the oppression, in other words, can inspire us to, to, to rebel with the artwork, to comment on the world independently. You know, when you're making a show for a network, uh, there are so many people regulating your speech even. I remember um, on the set of Strange World, I had said the phrase in one of my monologues, Superman. I was commenting on, I was in New Mexico shooting a monologue about how the government had taken these men and they were trying to enhance their abilities. And I was correct. And they said, no, you have to say super people. I said, well, they were taking specifically men at the time. No, you know, and, and, and it was just that weird little quirkiness that I felt that seeping in. And we were shooting that in um, early 2019. But since then, you know, there was this this intensity about adjusting speech, and most of us are individuals. We won't want that to ever happen, and so we we will rebel. And the greatest thing is that we have the technology to make movies now outside of the system. Good movies too, um, make radio, these podcasts, make television shows outside of the system, and that's what I'm choosing to do right now. I mean, could have easily have gone back to a network. Uh, and no offense to them or anything. Uh, I just feel like for them, they want, they're running a business. They're going to have better products from independent people. They won't be so regulated, but perhaps that's easing down. I don't know. I, I don't know. It seems to be the control or at least the attempts to control seems to be ramping up. I mean, had they had, they had attempted this back in the, the 1940s or 50s, um, it, it would have been far more easier for them to lock everything down. But now with the, they had all of this technology and the democratization of 
uh, you know, the, literally the means of production are now in our hands. Uh, it's like it's, it's it's like trying to control mercury, uh, like quicksilver on a table. I mean, it just beads, and you can't you can't control it. It's it, it does bode well not only for the for art, also, but I think for our own you know personal liberties and freedoms. Um, I want to get back to the podcast off to the witch because as I as I mentioned. Um, you're getting ready to sort of take that brand into several other projects, just not not just the podcast, um, but also perhaps a, um, a, a a horror film. For sure, and you know, the, honestly, that's how it began. I um, all of these elements that that we cover, uh, and, and that I am truly interested in since I was a kid, they're in this story, and I just for the sake of keeping it under wraps, I'd rather not tell the tale but i would say that it does have a central meaning and spirit to it but all of the above is in there and um it's exciting i i, I think it's been done before you know i mean like twilight zone was a brand it it, it it spanned radio and and tv and later a movie and everything but off to the witch will certainly be that uh in several different forms of of uh art and and expression and you know television i i'm making off to the witch presents right now i'm almost done with two chapters i've been shooting them for over a year and one of them is called a haunting we will go taking in very oversaturated subject matter and trying to and definitely accomplishing something original with it uh because also how far i mean is the goal to get evidence that there is life after death is is the goal to prove that there are discorporated spirits or something else happening because with all of the technology that's being used on a daily basis and umpteenth television series it seems like we haven't proven anything so perhaps that that's not the the way or leaning towards someone like michael persinger who we were we dashed upon in strange world for a minute he was exploring some interesting things or quantum sciences or you know and so those are the realms i'd like to go in at least in discussion um and in a haunting we will go is mostly about aesthetics that inspire us to get into something that might be real fiction fiction is the reason why i got into the paranormal i think i i was seeing things like in search of on tv but i i, I could still associate with ghost stories and other things i saw as a kid before that uh, you know even Evan and Costello hold that ghost or something like that. It's like, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really interesting because they're saying this is real. And I only lived 15 minutes from the Amityville house. So that was local folklore. That was the scary movie when I was a kid. And um, I like, what is it that makes us tick? And what is it? Why are we interested in this stuff? And I think my original pitch for Strange World was, and it was a shorthand to the network just so they could understand was that imagine if Anthony Bourdain was looking into this this subject matters, these bizarre subject matters as opposed to food and culture, uh, not so much a ghost hunting show. And so they were like, oh, well, we love that. And I showed them that in detail. And then you're in the middle of a project and they start to make you, they start to throw those elements of the ghost hunting show. And again, I think the ghost hunting thing is interesting, but is it being portrayed? in the proper way for the audience to, you know, cause it's being shown now as this kind of game. It's almost like a board game. Everyone's playing at a new house and the little light goes off and you know, Oh, that must be a ghost. It's like, well, I guess we proved there's life after death. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? What, what do you think really scares people on a primal level? Okay. So there is an, 
there was an academic study about this. And um, I believe the gentleman's name was David Aldrich. Framing the Dark was the name of the book. And I'm like, this egghead is no way in hell is he going to be able to make a horror movie by design. So then I read his, his book and I'm like, wow, he did it. Now it's heavy reading and it's, it's extremely analytical. Um, there's a psychoanalysis, but aren't we programmed essentially like at parts of it, it's, it, we're programmed to be afraid of teeth and insect legs and things that slither and things that move underneath the water and things that enter our bodies. And if you think about it, uh, everything from John Carpenter's The Thing to them to uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly all have those elements, disease, all of those things. There's a actually a video game. It's like the last real, outside of arcade games, uh, that's the last video game I actually played. It was called The Last of Us. And what they did, they were watching National Geographic about a fungus, um, cordyceps fungus, that only in the Amazon affects a particular species of ant. And what it does is it shoots out the spores and infects the ant. The ant becomes a zombie, crawls up onto a branch or, or, or something like that, and then its head pops open and the spores grow out of the head and shoot out more spores to infect more ants. And so The Last of Us is, what if this is going to happen to humans? And I think they're making a movie of it now. I hope the movie's done well because the concept is it's better than most movies I've seen. I mean, and it's real. What if you know, we dig a little further, we def for deforestation, we kill some more of the Amazon and some human effective spores come out and it's over. We're done. We're finished. <laughs> <laughs> and we are finished. Yes. Uh, that was a wild ride, Chris. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank I you. enjoyed that. I look forward to, of course, continuing to uh, discuss films on our Sofa Cinephile segment on the uh, Richard Serrett Show. And again, off to the witch, wherever you find your, uh, your podcast. We'll look for the Montauk Boys, hopefully in a bookstore soon. And um, uh, leave us with, a, with a, the YouTube channel. Oh, you could just go to... Um YouTube slash Garitano. That's my last name, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O and number seven. All right. Chris, all the best. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Richard. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.